As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Dan Bardell. And I'm Flo Lloyd-Hughes. And welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. It's Wednesday, which means we're picking out some of the best work available on The Athletic right now and putting the authors under the spotlight. Yo, Pierre, you want to come out here? Come on! Come on! Aubameyang, we find a way through. You bet he can. That is top, top class. And from 1-0 down, Aubameyang has personally turned it round. Two in the semi-final, two in the final. It's Arsenal 2, Chelsea 1. Yeah, I'm very proud, uh, especially because uh, my family is uh, Spanish as well. I'm just really proud and happy to be here. Yep, and this week our focus is on Arteta's Arsenal in the wake of Aubameyang's move to Barcelona. And we're going to be joined by Arsenal correspondents for The Athletic, Art de Rocher and James McNicholas. They've both written extensively about the public fallout and Arsenal's transfer window over the last couple of months. Yeah, plenty for us to unpack with Arsenal, including their chances of breaking into the top four this campaign as we head towards the business end of the Premier League season. So let's get straight into it. Welcome, James. Welcome, Art. Good to have you both on the pod. James, can you refresh our memories? How did it all start to unravel for the Arsenal captain? Well, to be honest, it's probably a story that goes back as far as the summer of 2020 when he was absolutely flying, scored the goals that won Arsenal the FA Cup and was granted a new three-year contract, which at the time was, I think, a defensible move. He was Arsenal's most important player, top goal scorer, captain. But really it began to unravel there because he, he struggled to maintain that form Arsenal obviously really struggled on the pitch in the first half of last season and as the striker I think Aubameyang suffered more than most. There have been a litany of of problems off the field, some of which he's had a hand in, some of which have been purely unfortunate, things like his illness, uh, he's had malaria, he's had COVID twice, family illness as well, um, disciplinary issues and then it really accelerated in December, just gone. Uh, when, of course, he he went on a trip to France uh, to visit his mother, I believe it was, returned later than he'd been granted permission to, and things blew up from there. He was removed from the first team uh, soon after, stripped of the captaincy. 
meetings were held at the training ground he met with I think Edu and the club's hierarchy then met one-to-one with Arteta and whatever passed in that meeting between those two obviously didn't go well because he never played for Arsenal again and at the end of the most recent transfer window he was effectively released from the club allowing him to join Barcelona uh, as a permanent transfer so it's been pretty uh, dramatic decline in Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's status at Arsenal and now of course not even there at all. James, it feels like we may never know what really happened in those sort of last couple of weeks or what really happened to cause the final straw in Arteta's book because it does seem like it's pretty extreme to cut ties with someone who six months ago was your most valuable player in in more than just kind of financial sense as well. It does. And obviously Arsenal have been very eager to make clear that you know, this is Aubameyang's latest disciplinary breach. That was the wording of their statement at the time. Some of those we've reported on in the past. You know, there was the instance where he was late for the North London derby. There was an instance where he broke club uh, COVID protocols to get a tattoo. There have been, you know, things like that which are in the public domain. What we don't know is what's not in the public domain. Uh, and also the, the interpersonal dynamic that exists between Arteta and Aubameyang. I do think that probably the key to this whole thing may lie in what went on in that room at London Colney between those two in that meeting. And obviously we're not party to that. And it was literally one-to-one. So only those two individuals can speak to that. Um, I agree. If you look at it on the surface... He was late back from a trip to France to visit his mother. It seems excessively harsh, I think, the punishment that was dealt out. I think depending on how your perception of the manager, perhaps, will determine how you interpret that. Some will say, well, there must be more that we don't know. You know, there must be more background that played into this. Others will say it's an example of a manager being too heavy handed in his management of a star. And without all the facts, without all the information, it's very, very difficult from the outside to make that call. Oh, do you think, if I, let's say Aubameyang had been banging the goals in on the top form that, that we've seen him in the past for Arsenal. I remember when he first joined, he, he was absolutely on fire. If Aubameyang was on top form, would you see this unravelling the same way? Or do you think in, in some ways Arteta might have been looking at an excuse to get rid of him? Because he doesn't really fit with the Arsenal ethos at the moment. You think of all the young players coming into the club, the young players coming through the academy, making it into the first team. Bamiang doesn't really fit anymore. Well, when you look at the situation at the time, Mikel Arteta was actually asked if if Bamiang had scored, say, 10 goals in his last 10 games, for instance, would he do the same? And he said he would. And that's pretty easy for him to say, I think, at the time. But the reality of the fact is it was probably easier for him to set Bamiang aside because he had not been performing that well. Um a few games, I think, before he eventually was dropped. He he had quite a poor performance against Everton, which I believe was his last game in an Arsenal shirt. You see how, I guess, Arsenal have played since his departure, um, mostly before they got into January, because as a team, they were very poor in January. But leading up to that, you saw in Alexandre Lacazette, a striker who is more in the mould of what Arteta wants, even though he's not as explosive or prolific as Aubameyang. Um, And I think that's something that myself and James have um, spoken about for about (laughs) almost a year now in terms of the type of striker Arsenal are looking for. It's almost like a mix between the two. Um, I remember speaking to 
Aubameyang before uh, the Villarreal Europa League semi-final and he spoke about how at the start he found it a bit easier because he was playing just off the left and coming into into spaces where defenders wouldn't be whereas he had to work a bit more to have playing with his back to goal become more of a natural thing for him. So I do think it probably was the time Arteta saw as the time to, to cut ties and look for who is going to be the, the next person to, to lead the line in the summer. Um, but again, it's not, I don't think, from the outside, it, it looks far from perfect the way it all ended. I know you guys in your kind of recent mailbag um, answered a lot of questions about the intricacies of the deal, which are quite complex. Can you explain how the, the, the deal with Barcelona is going to work? Yeah, I mean, the deal was always intended to be a loan deal. Up until the final hours of deadline day, they were talking about a six-month loan for Aubameyang. The clubs couldn't come to agreement on what proportion of his wages Barcelona would pay. He's on a was on a very big salary at Arsenal, their highest paid player. I think a deal that could be worth up to 350000 a week. So, you know, huge, huge money. And ultimately, they decided right at the death that the best way for them to do it was a termination. Uh, which would enable Aubameyang to join Barcelona on a free transfer. And the way it's working, it sort of has some comparison to the deal that saw Mesut Ozil join Fenerbahce about 12 months ago, where for the next six months, Arsenal are going to continue to make a contribution to Aubameyang's pay packet. Barcelona are also going to pick up a big chunk of that. And Aubameyang's made some sacrifice himself as well. Come the summer, Arsenal's financial obligations to the player cease. He can you know, sign a permanent contract with Barcelona. Well, his permanent contract can roll on rather and can continue with Arsenal having no part in it. It's difficult for us to unpick exactly how much money it will cost Arsenal to have got rid of Aubameyang. I mean, with that kind of salary, they were looking at another 25 million or so over the next 18 months. Certainly, they've saved substantially on that. It won't be the full amount. I think there'll be a cost to Arsenal that extends into the millions, certainly, to get rid of the player. But... For how long How long do you think they'll have to continue paying that for? Uh, it's going to be a number of instalments over the next six months. Okay. So I think, you know, they will have shorn themselves of the last year of the contract, certainly. And I would imagine slightly more than that based on what I've heard. But to, to imply that they have saved themselves all the money and it's been completely cost-free would be wrong. Arsenal have had to put their hand in their pocket to an extent to come to this mutual termination. I do think from a... A purely business perspective, setting the football aside, I think Arsenal will be maybe surprised and relieved that they have got someone to take over that contract for them. I think when they when they put Aubameyang on that money, I really thought he would be here until the end of that deal, almost whatever happened. So I think, you know, if Arsenal weren't going to use the player, it's a good thing that they're not paying 100% of the wages between now and next summer. But there's still the football question, you know, how much are they going to miss this guy on the pitch? And looking at their current striking options, you'd have to imagine that would be substantial. I might be completely wrong here, Art. I'm about to give Arsenal some credit, which people will say I never do on this podcast. The Ozil saga felt like it went on for absolutely ages, whereas this one, it feels like they've been quite decisive and dealt with it quite quickly. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I think you are. The big thing, personally, for me, when I was looking at this situation unfold was... You didn't want a repeat of the Ozil situation where you have a player who 
is unregistered, for instance, in the Premier League and Europa League squads last season, and then you get to January. And the big question is, again, is he even going to be registered? The main thing is they've managed to stop the bleeding. Um, and I think everyone can move on, um, not just Arsenal, but everybody kind of remembers that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang still has a career to to actually play football. Um, and I think that is finding a solution for all parties is probably um, the best thing to come out of this rather than ha- having Aubameyang sit on sit on the bench or training by himself for another six months. I don't think that would have been uh, a positive for anybody in, in, in this kind of situation. So uh, I think <laughs> most people would probably just be happy that uh, they were able to find a resolution for this. And I was just going to say, I think Arsenal will be relieved and perhaps some credit is due to Aubameyang as well for the fact that he has ultimately wanted to go and play somewhere else. You know, the Mesut Ozil situation developed into a kind of cold war, essentially, Mm -hmm. between the player and the club. He was happy to kind of sit there until the very final six months of his contract, picking up his salary, which he was absolutely entitled to do. But I think as fans, what we want to see is players who who want to play and, and credit to Oba because, you know, he has made a financial sacrifice to go and f- play for Barcelona. And actually for him, I think, you know, it's a deal that's pretty good. I mean, it's quite a long-term deal potentially with Barcelona. There's a break clause, I think, summer of 2023. But if not, it extends to 2025. It's playing in La Liga, a league he's always wanted to play in. I do wonder, even if nothing had gone wrong for him at Arsenal, had this offer come in, how attractive it might have been. When you think that just a week before the transfer deadline, he was looking at a move with respect to potentially Saudi Arabia. I think it's a a great deal for him too. And uh, listen, I'm an Arsenal fan, but I have to say I'm intrigued and excited to see how he gets on in La Liga. Yeah, on that, um, I mean, either Art or, or James pick up on it. I mean, what's the the mood amongst the fans on this and, and how does it compare to the Ozil saga? Because like you said, the Ozil situation was also awkward because he was making lots of statements on social media saying, you know, it's, it's not me, it's the club. And I think it became really difficult for people to really understand what was going on and people started taking sides. But it does feel like both sides in in this in this issue have been fairly quiet on things which has made it probably less messy than the Ozil affair and therefore has the fan consensus been fairly sort of positive in a way or or that they they, they almost have to accept that this is the case and it's not that they're almost angry at losing a big star well I- I'll tell you what I think. I mean, obviously, you know, you only get a read on things based on your timeline, your mentions, your bubble that you operate in. But I do think that the fact that it hasn't become a particularly public spat, that things have been handled internally primarily. You know, Aubameyang's not been kicking off, making social media statements. Um, He's kept a low profile. I thought even in his Barcelona unveiling, he was pretty measured. You know, he he had an opportunity there to really say whatever he wanted. And all he said was, I had a problem with Arteta. I mean, that's not telling us anything that we don't know, even Mm. if it did attract a lot of attention. I think that the fact that he hasn't been allowed to fester and go on has been positive and I think will help his legacy at Arsenal. You know, most of what I've read has been about what a fantastic player he was in the first two and a half years or so that we had him and the massive contribution he made to successes like winning the FA Cup in 2020, which fans think of very fondly. That came in the heart of lockdown. There wasn't a lot to be excited or hopeful about. He brought Arsenal the FA Cup. Uh, I think that it's unfortunate the way things have ended, but I think 
at Arsenal, we're pretty accustomed to sour endings with players. And this isn't one of the worst. I, I feel like his legacy will survive this. I don't know if you feel the same, Mark. Yeah, I, I definitely do. I think there is obviously the sense of sadness that has been on my timeline as well, but almost a, a sense of acceptance that is there that hasn't been there with other players leaving. Um, if you think of, say, Lauren Cassiani, for instance, a couple of years ago, there was a lot more outrage when that happened because of the manner of his departure. I think also, as James mentioned, uh, his contributions um, over the two and a half years, his first two and a half years, heavily outweighs um, what's happened in, in the past 18 months because another thing is not every Arsenal captain has done what he's done in terms of the FA Cup. That is something that, say, Robin Van Persie can't say. <laughs> um, and I think um, that's where there's going to be a lot of um, forgiveness, I guess, for Aubameyang. And also, I feel like a lot more uh, fans felt that they connected with him as a personality as well. Um, he was very uh, open <laughs> with uh, how he interacted with the Arsenal fan base. And I think um, that's probably put him in in good stead as well when it comes to how people reflect on his time at Arsenal. I don't think there's any real ill will from from the majority of Arsenal fans towards him. It seems like Aubameyang struggled with the culture that Arteta was trying to harvest a, a little bit at Arsenal. I mean, all the top clubs have this culture. So you think of Manchester City, Liverpool, there's definitely cultures that are developing, well, cultures that are there at those football clubs. I think there is one developing at Arsenal. Arteta talks quite heavily about the non-negotiables. What do, what do you guys think of that? What do you think the culture is that Arteta's trying to get going at Arsenal? Well, I think Aubameyang's problem was that he was the captain and so was expected to be kind of a manifestation of that culture, of those ideals, and obviously fell short in Arteta's estimation. Whether that needed to result in him being booted out of the club, I guess is another question, but... I think clearly Arteta discipline is something that's really important to him. You know, we've seen him fall out with players previously, likes of Mesut Ozil, who we've mentioned, Matteo Guendouzi is another. Um, there have been some question marks over his handling of William Saliba, sending him out on loan rather than integrating him in the first team squad. You know, Arteta is clearly a character who, he speaks about non-negotiables. I mean, I think he draws quite a hard line. I think he is quite a, a disciplinary figure. And it's such a change to what we're accustomed to at Arsenal. You know, Arsene Wenger was a guy who I think was occasionally accused of indulging players. And people spoke about London Colney being a bit of a crash, you know, where players could get away with things. And, you know, Unai Emery came in, tried to change that to an extent, didn't really have the authority, the gravitas to enforce that on the squad. Arteta... I think clearly has kind of seen that and tried to draw very hard lines where he can, very clear boundaries. Um, it's not to everybody's taste. And I mean players as well as fans. And, you know, there are players who who struggle in that environment. Aubameyang would be one. I, I guess the case that Arteta would make is that this is a, a cultural change that needed to happen at Arsenal, that they, they needed to have more rigour, more discipline uh, if they were going to get where they needed to go. And it's interesting, isn't it? He's built a squad around younger players, you know, players who maybe are, I don't know, more impressionable or more easier to handle in these circumstances. And I think when you've done that, it's all the more essential that the experienced players are setting the right example. 
And perhaps that's why if Aubameyang wasn't, Arteta felt he had to go. Would you go along with that, Art? One thing that I, I think Mikel Arteta said, I can't remember when it was, but he spoke about cleaning Arsenal in a sense, in terms of just cleaning the culture. And one thing I remember from his first press conference was him talking about a tree. And if the tree shakes, then you can't actually um, move forward properly. I've butchered the way he actually said Managers it, just but, love those metaphors, yeah. don't they? I just Sometimes I don't know where they're going with it, yeah. but I feel like they love to come up yeah. with something that sounds vaguely clever. Yeah. So they're always looking, always searching. But I think I know what yeah. he means by that. Mindsets, you know? We have to build a culture that has to sustain the rest. If we don't have the right culture, the difficult moments, the tree is going to shake. So my job is to convince everybody this is how we're going to live. And if you are going to be part of this organization, it has to be in these terms and in this way. That's where you've seen him just almost have his stance and he's not going to move away from that. Um, like James, I see people's reasoning in terms of that being a bit too much. Um, he is still, what, he's only two and a half years into his managerial career. And I do think as time goes on, he probably will need to develop those more softer managerial skills to um, get the best of his top players but you can see in terms of the recruitment especially the the goal is to get players who buy into his thinking and then and then you can build from there so I think it definitely is something where you can see the issues but over time you, you'd hope they just smooth out a little bit more and be a bit less drastic than they have been in, in the past two and a half years. And just to come back to Dan's original question way back about, you know, if Aubameyang was scoring goals, would this have happened? Perhaps not. Perhaps not. You know, what we don't know is the degree to which Arteta was willing to indulge Aubameyang or other players when they were really delivering, when they were really performing. I guess when that stops, when you're not doing that and you're not meeting the basic criteria, clearly that's where his line in the sand is. Um, but it is interesting because I think different managers would handle this differently. And I think, as Art says, maybe even in a few years' time, when he is a more experienced manager, Arteta might reflect on this incident and think, could I have done things another way? I don't know. He doesn't seem like the character to admit that he was wrong. So maybe not. But we have to... Uh, yeah, it's a possibility. Yeah, very much like my mum, Mikhail Arteta. He <laughs> admits that she's wrong. We'll carry on this chat after the break. And we're also going to have a little talk about last month's window. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. I had a chat also with, uh, with Mikel. Yes that uh, I think it gave me something very clear yeah. about the idea of the future of the of the club and about me. He yes. was thinking, okay. What did he say about you? <laughs> he said, okay, you can, it was straight and honest. And that's what I like because yeah. we are always honest. And he, he said, okay, you can maybe leave. I don't know what's your, what's your mind right now, but you can leave and go for trophies uh, in other clubs, or you can stay here and uh, have legacy yes man. and 
This for me was the keyword. The legacy. Yeah. <laughs> James, I wanted to ask you because I saw a clip of you on the on the Arsenal Athletic podcast talking about how um, Arsenal had tried to move away from having this kind of all-powerful one figure at the club. Yeah. But perhaps the Aubameyang uh, situation shows that they might be moving back towards having an individual who is obviously quite central to what happens at the club. So could you just kind of explain a little bit more of your thoughts on that and also whether that's a good or a bad thing for Arsenal? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, Arsenal were defined, the modern Arsenal was defined by that period under Arsene Wenger where he was effectively running the club. You know, it felt like he was a chief executive, a technical director and a head coach all in one. Arsenal really kind of diversified their executive strategy after that went with the kind of head of football and a technical director and a head coach and Arteta's original job was head coach uh, but after he won the FA Cup and had that really impressive first six months he was promoted to manager and I think since then his influence within the club has continued to grow I mean Arsenal are keen to emphasise that it is a team effort you know that the likes of Edu and uh, director of football operations Richard Garlick and the board and the ownership are all important voices at the table and I don't doubt that but you know you listen to Arteta in any press conference and you hear stories about him and you realise that his voice is maybe loudest you know he is a very uh, charismatic uh, leadership figure and I think there is a huge amount of faith in him at Arsenal and consequently he wields a lot of power um, so I, I do think Arsenal I would I'd probably be exaggerating if I said they've come full circle I don't think that's true but I think clearly you know he is far more than just a coach uh, he's up there with Edu on a level pegging really as a technical director and has a lot of influence over all the technical decisions within the club now a lot of managers a lot of fans would say that's as it should be um, but I don't think he would have been backed on this Aubameyang issue unless his standing was very, very high. Uh, you know, ultimately, he's won this battle against the highest paid, biggest star in the club. It doesn't always go that way for managers. And for Arteta to have come out of this situation seemingly getting what he wants. I mean, I don't know whether he'd want Aubameyang to go, but surely uh, he's had a big say in what's happened. I think tells you about about the position he holds at Arsenal, um, which and is. I suppose be really when you look at a situation like Everton had with with Luca Dean, where yeah, Benitez won and then ended up losing his job anyway, it shows that when you try and sort of well, uh, Dan's giving a fist pump because it was Villa's gain that situation, but it is interesting how you know often when these situations happen. Both parties can end up losing anyway, but that's true. But I think what's interesting about that is that Benitez was already on quite precarious ground at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. And I don't have any sense that Arteta is on particularly precarious grounds. Of course, mm. if the rest of the season is a disaster and yeah, Arsenal, yeah. you know, languish in lower reaches of mid-table, blah blah blah, you know, it, it could be. And certainly, the Aubameyang saga will be a kind of defining thing I think for Arteta if he comes through this and manages to succeed with this team in relative terms he'll look much stronger if Arsenal fail and they struggle to score goals this Aubameyang situation is going to be brought up time and time and time and time yeah. again but I do think that the fact that um, the club have effectively backed his disciplinary measures here 
shows you that right now he's on a pretty strong footing. Yeah, uh, because obviously James talks of the Veng, the Vengiers, the tail end of the Vengiers, where he's almost doing too much at the football club. Did he perhaps then go too far the other way with Emery in charge? And now they kind of have found a middle ground and got it right? Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd say they've got it 100% right just yet. Okay. Because there is still a sense of... I think especially from the outside, it could still be too much, the complete opposite way of Arsene Wenger. I do think Emery was probably too much too soon. I think it was in Unai Emery's second game in charge in the Premier League where he brought off Mesut Ozil after, I think, maybe it was an hour. And you could see even then it it just didn't sit right. Um, But I I do still think there is a, a way to go before you find... Uh, I guess the the happy middle ground be, uh, between setting your standards and also not 100% appeasing those players, but just helping them through those situations a bit more um, because you can't go through situations every, every season where you have to terminate uh, a contract of a high paid player um, just to keep things moving. You, that isn't great for business as, as as well as football. But is that what Arteta's moving away from a little bit? Because they almost win, like, I don't know how much Lacazette's on, but when Lacazette probably goes in the summer, they almost won't have that that star man, that high-paid player anymore. So they, they because of the way they've built and the way they've done transfer business, arguably they won't ever find themselves in that position again. It's true, but they also will need senior players who they can mm. depend on. You can't. Well, I so I suppose is, is is Pepe also looking at the next guy on the conveyor belt of high paid players I did, that might I did be on the way Pepe out. I forget Pepe had existed, to be fair. When I, <laughs> so I feel like it, you know, there's. I suppose the situation that, uh, not to get too big a picture, but I suppose the situation in football at the moment is that there's always going to be a player that might not work out at a club, but a club puts and gambles a lot on them as the one that's going to be their saviour almost. And I suppose the failing at Arsenal has been perhaps there's a few too many of those guys who are near that sort of, you know, with Abamiam, the sort of leader of that, and whether they need to move to a less sort of like changing room hierarchy in the kind of financial respect. I don't know. Yeah, I think that I think that's what they've done in terms of the recruitment strategy last summer. It was a much more... Um, how can I put it? I guess the distribution of wages changed. Yeah. You know, they've moved on a lot of players on very high salaries, brought in people on slightly more even, egalitarian, slightly lower wages in a lot of instances. Um, and and I it, think that will happen will when you have younger players anyway, won't it? Is they're always going to ask for a bit less? That's a de- that's organic to a degree. What will be interesting is, obviously, they still need a striker and you know, they're going to have to put a lot of eggs, financial eggs in a basket to get somebody of the requisite quality. Um, so then you run the risk of ending up in a situation like this again, where you've you've spent a lot of money on a player and you kind of need it to work to an extent. I think the age profile will be key. You know, I think Arsenal signed Aubameyang for 60-odd million quid in 2018. And I think when it got to August 2020... It's easy to say this with hindsight now, but maybe the right thing to do was sell him at that point with a year to go on his contract. He'd made a fantastic contribution to the club, helped them win a trophy, scored a lot of goals, 
but was coming, you know, he was the wrong side of 30 and past his prime. And Arsenal chose to keep him on, on huge money, and thus ruled out really getting any kind of transfer fee, have had ultimately to pay him off and were left with a player who was no longer likely to be at his best. I appreciate it's easy to say all this down the line when you've seen it play out how it has, but maybe what Arsenal needed to do then was be bolder and be braver and make the choice to sell him and, and bring in a younger replacement that would protect them better financially. Um, and maybe that will be the lesson of all this. I certainly hope so. Turns out actually that in the summer, people that present this podcast don't always know what they're talking about. And Arsenal had a very, very successful summer transfer window. Are uh, January dis- disappointed? Yeah, I personally I was, and I think a lot of Arsenal fans were because they feel this is probably the best chance Arsenal have at sneaking into the top four in years um, and going into the second half of the season with an incredibly thin squad doesn't help matters. You have um, Alexandre Lacazette as your main striker now who struggles to, to complete games and be effective for 90 minutes. And then behind him, you have Eddie Nketiah, who is the only other recognised striker at the minute. Um, and I think uh, when you look at the rest of the season with Arsenal having no cup competitions to play in either, the, the room for error is minimal. And you can't really... I, I don't think it's great to go into a period of... Uh, a long period of time where every single moment of football is going to have uh, a massive weight on your shoulders. Um, Of course, it means everybody knows where they stand, but uh, it also puts you at a great risk, I think, of of flattering to deceive. So, um, yeah, I think January should have had um, at least one incoming player, whether that be a central midfielder or a striker. Um, And I, I... 100% 100% understand the frustration from, from outside with uh, Arsenal fans looking at that window. Yeah, James as well. This is a it's a huge chance to get top four. I don't know how confident you would have been going into the season. Probably not much after the, after the first three games, to be fair. But, <laughs> you know, this is a massive chance for Arsenal to get in the top four. It's almost like nobody wants that fourth spot at the moment. So with that in mind, should they have done more in January? And if they don't get top four... How much does that affect them getting this goal scorer in that we're talking about? I think, uh, listen, especially with my fan hat on, I would have loved to see them add a player or two in January. I think it would have really helped. It's interesting, if those clubs who are sort of pushing for those European places, only Spurs really came out of January, I think, with any significant additions. You know, United didn't... And they had uh, a bad West summer Ham. as well, didn't they, Spurs, really, if you look at it? So it's like almost yeah. making up for that, whereas Arsenal had a good summer. Yeah, and they've got a new manager in as well, which always, you know, you look at Villa, they've got a new manager in and they're one of the few clubs who did significant business. But West Ham, I mean, there was a great opportunity Mm. for them to kick on. They couldn't get the striker they needed. I think maybe that tells you a bit about it being a difficult market. I know that feels like excuses sometimes, but there were a lot of clubs who wanted to do business but ultimately couldn't. I saw David Moyes saying West Ham put three transfer record bids in and yet couldn't land the striker they were looking for. Um, I think Arsenal, to be honest, were in a similar position where there were players they wanted and they did make efforts to get them, but it ultimately didn't happen. And that sort of leaves me in a bit of a quandary, really, because on the one hand, I'm frustrated. Obviously, I want shiny new toys. Obviously, I'd like a new striker. But if Arsenal have chosen to 
sit on their, you know, to, to keep their powder dry and focus on their real targets in the summer when they think they've got an achievable chance of landing them. For a club that for a long time has sort of lacked direction and a clear strategy, I can't hammer them too hard for sticking to the plan. So it's a tricky one because on one hand, I applaud the kind of commitment to strategy, but on the other I'm worried about if Alexandra Lacazette and Eddie Nketiah have the firepower needed to to get Arsenal over the line. I, I never came into the season thinking top four was a realistic prospect, even before those first three games and even after. Um, but, you know, as the season has developed and, as you say, no one else has really grasped it, it is there for somebody. And I have to say, even with the lack of signings, Arsenal's... Uh, schedule gives them a chance you know it's a very clear run they have got a, a promising group of players if they can keep their first 11 fit I think they have certainly a punching chance in this race but if they don't make it then it, it, I think it, it, fans will reflect on it as an opportunity missed uh, So I suppose the big question for a lot of fans is are Arsenal going to get into the top four Um or get into Europe at all, I guess. Um, where do you guys see the season going? Uh, I'll let you uh, take that one first. <laughs> so um, going into this season, my expectations were Europa League minimum. Um, so either fifth or sixth. I think um, after January, reflecting on that, I just feel like they won't have enough to, to break into the top four this year. I think they still... Uh, should be able to finish in the Europa League. I do feel fifth would probably be most likely. So that's going to be my prediction. Although I hope I'm wrong and and um, they can sneak in there, but I just don't feel it's very likely at the minute. And do you think that will be enough for the Arsenal hierarchy and, and the fans as well? I, I do think so because... As James mentioned, he wasn't expecting Arsenal to finish in the top four. I, I highly doubt the hierarchy at Arsenal were too. Um, when you look at the situation, Artes has been in much more dire situations. If you think back to um, the winter period last season, when they went from, I think it was November 1st, to Boxing Day without a win, um, and he survived. And I think uh, with his contract coming into his final year at the end of the season, I think they'll be more than happy to just see that out and see what happens. So, um, yeah, I don't think top four would have a, a major influence on on his his standing as Arsenal manager. James, how about you? Well, I'd love to see Arsenal finish in the top four. I have to say, I, I don't I don't quite fancy it. I think I'm with our, I think they'll be top six, but not top four, fifth or sixth place. Uh, and do I think that will be enough? I think so. I think it will be enough for Arteta to stay in the job and realistically probably to get a new contract because I don't think they would let him go into the final year of his contract without an extension. I think they would want to address that. And I think if he brings European football back, that is what will happen. Um, I think after that, you know, looking further ahead, the following season would have to be about getting back into the Champions League. It's interesting, we did a profile on Edu on The Athletic about 12 months ago. Uh, and one of the things that David Ornstein and I wrote was that Edu believes that the 2022-23 season is when Arsenal will be 
competitive again, whatever competitive means. And I do wonder to what extent that season has kind of been earmarked as a, a critical one where they can really kick on. I think the scale of the rebuild this season meant that top four was always going to be quite challenging. Um, so I, I think top six might be what Arsenal are looking at. And I think I think that will be enough. For me, top four would be ahead of schedule and I'd be delighted. I think if they get top six, they're just about on schedule. So our Arsenal correspondents, no top four for Arsenal. You two, both back in Spurs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no comment. No comment. Are you asking me to pick between Spurs and United? You know, If Arsenal aren't going to do it, I hope it's West Ham, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, well, I've been good to the Arsenal fans in this podcast for a change, but I actually do think Spurs will get top four. So I'll end it on a sour note, but it's been great to speak to you both. Really enjoyed talking to you about Arsenal. Really, really interesting times to be an Arsenal fan. Thanks very much. Cheers. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's betterhel dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Flo, still time to highlight some great other writing that's up on the site right now. What have you been enjoying? There's a really good piece, actually. Obviously, we know that the um, battle to avoid relegation is pretty spicy right now. Newcastle adding a lot of new players. Can Frank Lampard get Everton out of uh, out of their sticky situation? So there's a really good piece, which a lot of the writers have contributed to up on the site now, which is called Don't Look Down, The Battle to Avoid the Drop. And it's got lots of kind of nice graphs on it, lots of hypotheticals, points per game, XG, shots, all that good stuff, uh, as well as kind of all the the beat writers all contributing as well. So definitely a nice, big, juicy piece to get stuck into ahead of a very exciting second half of the season. 
And a final reminder for me as well that you can read every article we've mentioned and so much more by signing up to The Athletic. Save 33% on a full subscription today by visiting theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Really enjoyed that today. Thanks as always to you, Flo, and our thanks goes to both James and Art as well. And of course, thank you to all of you for listening too. Get involved in the comment section. We'd love to hear your thoughts and why not leave us a review if you've got the time. This was the Athletic Football Podcast. Mark Chapman and Matt Slater reconvene to discuss the business of sport tomorrow. We hope you'll join us again. The Athletic.